My name is Jared Longshore, and you're listening to Reclamation Worship. My name is Jason Allen, and I'm the host of Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Reclamation Worship. If you're a first-time listener, we're so glad that you're here. I want to invite you to head on over to reclamationworship.com, where you can find all of the previously recorded episodes. And also take a moment to check out what my kids and I are doing on The Pilgrim's Progress. We're looking at The Pilgrim's Progress, and we're calling the new series The Pilgrim's Progress Conversations. All right, today's guest is Jared Longshore, and I want to invite you from the outset here to head on over to reclamationworship.com and check out the show notes for this episode. There are a lot of resources that are linked there. You'll see by what standard the Synodoc that Founders Ministries has put out, and also information about the forthcoming docuseries, Wield the Sword. You're going to want to learn more about that. All right, well, let's head on over to the interview. Jared, great to have you on Reclamation Worship. Uh, Glad to be here. All right, man. So uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. You're uh, getting over a uh, a cold or some kind of upper respiratory deal. So are you feeling better? Yeah, I am feeling better, and uh, I'm thankfully I can't be contagious to you through the. Internet, so <laughs> you sound a little bit hoarse. So, all right, good deal. Well, um, hey man, why don't you start off by sharing uh, a little bit about yourself and um, how the Lord saved you? I'd love to hear uh, how you got to where you are now, and then in your testimony. I was born and raised in Central Florida, a little small town called Avon Park, and uh, grew up at First Baptist Church, Avon Park. So I was just there regularly Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings and Sunday nights. Dad was a deacon, and mom and dad sang in the choir, that kind of thing. And so I was raised hearing the gospel, trusted the Lord uh, at nine years old, was baptized then. And continued to grow up in that church. Went off to college in Central Florida after that. And uh, then transferred down to Southwest Florida, where I'm at now, to finish up college. Um, let see. Graduated college. Went straight into ministry uh, when I was 22. And uh, <clears throat> went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School first. And then transferred into Southern Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. I did all of that distance right after college, got married to my wife, Heather, and uh, started ministering to church, going to school and having babies. So uh, there was a lot of them in the first years. She's pregnant with number seven right now, who is due really in like two weeks. I think. Wow. Wow. Uh, and so uh, let's see, went to Southern Seminary, did MDiv there finished that up. I don't remember exactly when, but transferred in, did a little bit more work there, uh, all distance. Served about three churches now down here in Southwest Florida and presently associate pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Now, you serve alongside Tom Askell. How's he doing? I know he had a health scare toward the end of 2019. How's he doing these days? Yeah, he's doing really well. We thank God. It seems to 
Lord has heard the prayers of his people. And it's been, um, it really has been glorious to walk through it. It's been sad and challenging and uh, concerning. It was certainly a scary event uh, that morning <clears throat> when he fell. But uh, boy, God has been good to him. So whip on me. So everything's back to normal. He's, he's, um, I think he's had like four trips in this, in this one month period. So he's already back up and running. We're thankful for that. Fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, um, y'all had a, a busy year last year uh, in 2019. You had your, the ministry you're a part of, Founders. Uh, share with us a little bit about Founders. Uh, I've had uh, Tom on the podcast before, but in case someone has not heard that episode, share with us uh, what Founders is, and uh, then I'd love to talk about uh, by what standard that y'all released last year. Yes, I serve as the Vice President of Founders Ministries. It is a ministry that's been around for 30 plus years. I'm not sure exactly how many, probably 36, 35 or 36 now. Um, it is a ministry, really a teaching ministry. It's devoted to the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. Uh, they formed back when the conservative resurgence was happening in Southern Baptist life. And these men that gathered uh, appreciated the inerrancy of scripture, knew that that was crucial. And yet they knew that we needed to come back to the doctrines of grace and a robust understanding of those doctrines uh, in not only a theory, but practice. So uh, let's see, there's a number of arms of the ministry. There's articles that go out continually at founders.org. Um, we now have a podcast called The Sword and the Trowel, where Tom and I talk, Either he and I, we often have people join us on that. Uh, there is the Founders Press, where we publish a number of books. Um, most recently, we have some great stuff on covenant theology from a Baptist perspective by Sam Rinehan. Uh, stuff on the law and the gospel by Ernie Riesinger. Um, there's a Founders Journal. goes out quarterly, and that's online as well. We do events regularly. Uh, so there's a lot of arms of the ministry. There's a study center that's actually uh, online. and um, Tons of resources there. So if you go to founders.org, you can kind of get the background and get good access to what Founders is all about. Great. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes and uh, also link to y'all's podcast. Love y'all's podcast. Very helpful. Good. Jared, tell us how By What Standard came about. What, what's, what I think is going on with By What Standard, what it came to be, was trying to raise the church's awareness to a vain, empty philosophy that we believe was encroaching upon God's people. So Paul tells us in Colossians to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And this is a real problem. Paul wouldn't warn about it if it wasn't a real problem. But, but the problem with a philosophy is it's uh, Van Hooser has this great line where he says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against isms. Mm -hmm. The problem with an ism is that you don't, you don't always see it. It's just, it's kind of under the surface. And so this film was an effort to open up people's minds to help them see like, yes, there, there, this ideology is real and let's paint it. Let's explain what it is. Um, it's so uh, influenced us that we actually came to a resolution at the Southern Baptist convention resolution nine that said, we wanted to use critical race theory and intersectionality as an analytical tool. Well, uh, CRT and intersectionality are, uh, ideologies that have their origins in Marxism. That's not good. We, we have a problem right. here. Right. We want to 
we want to deal with this. So we were trying to just show um, how that ideology, uh, what it is, and then how it is influencing uh, certain peoples. doesn't mean that we were saying these people are uh, Marxists. We're not saying these people are full critical race theory uh, advocates. But we did want to have kind of turn the lights on for people to help them see uh, what was going on. And the way to do that is when you look at an issue like racism or misogyny or uh, the issue of homosexuality, and you hear people start saying, well, this is right and this is wrong when it comes to these issues. The question you need to be asking is by what standard? By what standard is this wrong? By what standard is this right? And if you ask that question and you look to the book, you're going to start to realize that uh, people are actually saying things are wrong that aren't wrong by the scripture. It's going to, so the the call to buy what standard is a way to help people uh, recognize this dangerous philosophy. That's helpful. Now, um, when you and Tom and, and, I suppose there were others that were in on the decision to make by what standard when y'all were uh, putting this together and, and uh, thinking about filming this, uh, synodoc, um, you had planned to film at the Southern Baptist convention. Did y'all have any idea of what was going to unfold, uh, there at the convention? No, we did not have any idea of what was going to unfold. It's hilarious the way this came, this came to pass. There's a there's a there's a documentary that's worth watching. It's on the internet for free. I think it's called Battle for the Minds, and it is a story. It's a, a documentary from back in the conservative resurgence days, and I think it was produced by a man whose mother wanted to be a pastor and like couldn't or something like that. So it's it's kind of uh, antagonistic against conservative Christian thinking. But we were watching it, it deals with Molly Marshall, who was a big figure in Southern Baptist life and has Al Mohler in there and has many others. So it's a Southern Baptist kind of thing. And and I have a buddy, this guy that actually produced the film, David Shannon. He runs something called The Chocolate Factory. So he uh, he's texting me saying, I'm watching this and there's all the same ideas going on. You got to watch this. Y'all are dealing with this right now. And so we start watching it and I start watching it with my wife and I start watching it with my kids. And, you know, we're talking about the different stuff that's going on under the surface in this, in this film. And then my wife, it's hilarious. It's just really funny because my wife is like, you should, you should do a film. You know, you should have David go out there to SBC and do a film and, and try to show how, Hey, battle for the minds part two, we're going to show we're still dealing with the same problems, which is hilarious to me because of the stuff. Like this has been quite an influential film. And one of the arguments against a guy like me, who's a misogynist and has a wife with seven kids that she homeschools is, well, she doesn't do anything significant. It's like, it was her idea that we did this whole film. (laughs) She's out there buying a vineyard and plant it. She's like a Proverbs 31 woman. So you're not really a misogynist, right? That's that's the criticism that's leveled against you. That's right. I'm obviously not. My wife's so, so, uh, so (laughs) off that she, created this whole film it was her idea (laughs) so at any rate we it was just a wild convention we go there and we're shooting all this footage and we've got all these interviews with people we've asked everybody what we we told them we said hey can we interview you and then there's all these crazy things that happen like we would go interview people and we would say like hey would you do this interview is what it's about yeah we'll do this interview we'd interview them and then people are like on the internet saying we're doing we're like 
uh, running up on people and interviewing them without us, without them knowing, which was crazy. It's like, we got all the footage. We could like release all these, these things <laughs> if we wanted to. Right. But then we had no idea that resolution nine was coming. Um, but caught word about it and had footage of it all since we were all there. And it just, it was a dramatic moment, which really does come out in the, in the film. David's done a great job of kind of putting people right in that moment of uh, what happened. Jared, why is this film important to the average person sitting in a pew on a Sunday? Uh, what is it that they need to know? Why is it important that they watch this film? It's important to watch this film so that you can have the lights turned on to the worldview that is all around you and that you have been steeped in ever since you were born. Um, we were talking earlier and I referenced uh, David Wells's No Place for Truth. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's kind of hard to read, but it's it's worth reading. And, uh, you know, to, I can put it this way. One of the challenges, uh, w- the worldview that is all around us that we've been steeped in, I would identify as secular humanism. I think there's a lot of ways that you could define it. But secular humanism is one idea. So we need to know the presupposition that we're, we're all operating on in the educational systems that the vast majority of us have been raised in and all of the entertainment, the Disney movies that come have been that there is no God. There is no God. And it's rather been that man is God. And therefore you need to follow your heart and you need to become whatever you want to be when you grow up. And then all of a sudden when a boy grows up and says, well, I want to become a woman. And he says, you told me I could. And we say, Oh no, no, we didn't mean that. You see. So the, the philosophy there, there is actually a worldview. There is a philosophy that is all around us that has a way of seeping into the church. So when the apostle Paul in Colossians says, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Uh, we need to make, we need to realize that we have. So this, this film will help you identify that philosophy. And it's just, it's just a starting point. It's going to get down into critical race theory and intersectionality and trying to understand critical theory and how uh, from Marx then to Gramsci to the Frankfurt School, how people thought. If, if there is no God and then we're going to seek some kind of justice, well, that worldview is eventually going to have an ethical system. It's going to have a way that you say, you determine what's right and what's wrong. So it's easy to be duped by this philosophy. And I do think that it has been making inroads into Christian teaching, into popular Christian thought. And it has a way of uh, trickling down then uh, to the churches. So I, I think this film will help you. It's gonna, you're going to say, oh, whoa, I didn't know that this was going on. And we'll kind of position you to see what's going on out there. So I wanted to talk with you also about uh, contending for the faith. Um, we read in Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I I don't think it can be said um, that founders is not contending for the faith, right? That is uh, what 
you are doing day in and day out. I think what I want to talk about is how do we do this in a way that is God honoring? I think Founders is doing that. The criticism, though, that is usually leveraged is that Founders is mean-spirited or contrarian. So help us to think through how we contend for the faith in a way that is God-honoring and loving. Um, again, I would contend that, that Founders is loving in your approach, uh, but help us understand the criticisms and, and why they may be as they are. Yeah, man, that is such an important conversation and it's huge. One of the things that has helped me to know um, how to contend for the, the faith is watching or reading about other men doing it throughout history. Hmm. So go read some Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther said some things that I wouldn't say. If people think that we're too punchy, you can go read some Martin Luther and um, that'll help provide some perspective. But reading Whitfield and Wesley, you know, um, Whitfield and Wesley have been very helpful in that they, they talked before and Whitfield said, please, Wesley, don't go advance these, this Arminian teaching. He said, don't write about it. But Wesley wrote about it. And when he did, he made it public. And Whitfield said, I regret that I now have to take up my pen. And he did take up his pen and he wrote an open letter. And that there's an idea there that's very important is that public teaching warrants being corrected publicly. And we have, the again, by what standard is something mean-spirited or by what standard has somebody not been charitable? That's a big, big phrase. And you know, charitable means loving. You have been as loving as you ought to be. Um, well, by what standard is that? One of the th ideas is that right now, if you're ever going to correct somebody publicly, you need to first talk to that person privately. Well, that might be good. You might be able to do that. And I think in, in, in many ways, you try to do that. But it's not actually something that seems to be required. If because the idea is something has been taught publicly that's actually going to hurt people, that is erroneous, and we need to determine how erroneous it is, and we need to have our response be measured according to how bad the error is. So yes, we certainly have to, to address all of those kinds of things. I think the challenge in our day is we, we really do have among us this um, inflated sense of ourselves. An inflated sense of man, which is what secular humanism really is all about. And so, uh, how dare you correct me? I mean, how or how dare you correct him? This is a, this is another human being. It's like, well, even think about the text you read. Uh, certain people have crept in, meaning the person that is being corrected there is presenting himself or herself as a Christian. Now, um, so even the idea of, of correcting a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. We need to acknowledge that. We need to think there's a difference between correcting someone who is clearly outside of the faith and someone who's inside the faith. Um, but it, the rule is not that, well, just because you're a Christian, then we're not going to cross swords. I mean, as iron, sharpen iron, uh, as iron sharpens iron. Um, so there is a world here. There is a way to, um, to correct and rebuke without uh, great patience and careful instruction. And we shouldn't do that. We should be correcting with patience. We should be correcting with careful instruction. And admittedly, that's challenging to do. I would, I would say to a lot of guys, we, we have a lot of guys that contact us and they say, hey, I see what you're doing. I see this pastor in the public square thing and I like it. I want to do it. Um, but then they, they just, they're not sure how to do it. It's like, well, you know, if you see some low hanging fruit, let us know. Well, often what you think is low-hanging fruit, you when you actually hit it and people hit back and you're like, 
wow, okay, this now I now I've done something here. Uh, I remember going to Thessaloniki, and and there was you know it's a beautiful beautiful city, and it's got the ancient feel to it. Still out of the wall from who knows how many hundred years ago. And, but it also has modern dimensions. So it has a Starbucks there, you know, and I'm sitting there drinking my Starbucks, <laughs> Thessaloniki. And I'm thinking Paul walked into this city and couldn't be here, but for a few days and he gets run out of town because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and everybody's getting angry. And I'm, I'm quite content. I mean, I'm not going to get run out of here. I'm sipping my latte and nobody's right. going to, I remember, and I, I remember trying to think of the objections to that idea, like, well, you know, you're not the Apostle Paul and whatever. I mean, there could be, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I could think of maybe some objections, but it still sticks pretty hard. It's like we have found a way to accommodate ourselves mm-hmm. to not only to you know Thessalonica, but to American culture. We have accommodated ourselves. Melvin Tinker in his book on that hideous strength, how the West was lost. I would highly recommend that book. He talks about resistance thinking. And he's using C.S. Lewis on this. And C.S. Lewis says, emphasize the parts of Scripture or the parts of the Christian gospel that are in harmony with the spirit of the age, and you won't have any conflict. He says, but emphasize the parts of the gospel or the Christian faith that are contradictory to the spirit of the age, perhaps even distasteful or abominable to the Christian, to the, to the spirit of the age. And you will be relevant not only in your time, but for the ages to come. Mm. And I realized, I almost wrote a blog once called Fighting Where the Battle is Cold. And I think that's what a lot of guys do. It's like, well, look, I'm contending because I'm actually reading the Bible and I'm applying the Bible. But you're, you're reading the Bible and applying the parts of the Bible that, that are in accordance with the spirit of the age, rather than actually seeing where the threat is to the Christian gospel. I think a lot of that threat presently is on authority and responsibility and the understanding of hierarchy, you know, issues of manhood and womanhood, the issues of sexuality, the issues of humanity, those kind of things. If you're going to be playing in that space right now, that's where the attack's coming and you're going to get a lot of fire. Yeah. So I'm not saying everybody um, has to do that or has to do that in the same way, but if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, um, I do believe you need to do that. Um, Charles Spurgeon, you know, has a wonderful line. Um, he says, controversy for the truth against the errors of the age is we feel more than ever convinced the peculiar duty of the preacher. Hmm. You know, if, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, uh, I've heard it said this way, the pulpit is a place that should require courage. Like if you're not getting up in the pulpit and kicking over people's idols left and right in this climate in 21st century America, then what's going on? Like mm-hmm. you really have, I think we've got to find ways that we, we have um, accommodated ourselves to the culture that's around us. I remember some of the texts that didn't make any sense before we started to, to, um, to minister in this fashion. Texts like uh, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I often thought, where's the persecution? You know, and some people would say, well, it's because America is a Christian nation, you know, and we, well, look, we had Judeo-Christian principles back at the founding, but look at, look at the rampant sin, the crazy sexual immorality, the slaughter of the unborn. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not, we can't say that, well, it's because we're just so Christian that we don't get persecuted. Yeah. That's not what's going on. And I began to be convicted about that. And, you know, blessed are you when people revile you and utter all kinds of evil things against you on my account. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So one thing, when guys contend 
I think we should contend in a jolly way. We should contend with a smile. I mean, think about what that text says. When people utter all kinds of evil things about you, which they, they have certainly as we've gone about doing by what standard, you know, we started throwing little parties around here. Like somebody would slander us all over the internet. We'd come home and we have a feast and we right. say, all right, Hey, you know, we must be doing something right here, given all the flack that we're getting uh, for uh, what we've done. So there's a world here when it comes to um, controversy. I don't think we should relish controversy within the church. Um, boy, that, you know, seeing that wonderful hymn, the church is one foundation by schisms rent asunder by heresies um, oppressed. And we should lament when there is um, division in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Unity is a, um, is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's not an ultimate thing. It hasn't been if you read the history of the church. Um, <clears throat> so, at any rate, I could go on about this. So I, I probably should take a breath, but there's so much more here that we could get into. Jared, on the topic of engaging with one another and sitting across the table from one another uh, and tone, uh, let's talk about that and how you see um, contending for the faith in those two issues. Yeah, you know, if I could address the things at the beginning too, because I think I think that's really important about um, not being gracious, the charge of not being gracious or not being charitable. Um, that is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, that's really the by what standard is a wonderful question to be asking in those cases. I remember this is again, this is something that Tom's helped me on so much over the years, but. Uh, you can have people play on your emotions and not realize it. I remember we were talking one day, this is his little phrase from years back. That's always stuck with me. He says, look, there's not a day of the week that my wife can come to me. Can't come to me and say, you could have loved me better today. She could do it every day. She could do it Tuesday. You could have loved me better today. You could have loved me better today. Um, because the standard is that I love her as Christ loves the church. And that's never met. Mm. And so we need to acknowledge that when it comes to those positive commands, um, you could have been more gracious. You could have been, well, yes, it's true. I could have been more gracious. The question is, was I actually unloving? Mm. Uh, was I actually not gracious? And let's try to get down and deal with that honestly. So that is not a card for a man to go around and be lackluster in the way that he loves his wife. And when she comes to him and says, you haven't loved me that well today, be like, you know, well, I could have loved you better any time. So well, yeah. that's <laughs> not, I'm not giving anyone a license to do that kind of thing. But in this climate that we're in, I'm asking people to actually assess what was done and don't let the words, you know, uncharitable, ungracious, you say, okay, well, let's, let's get a good definition for these things. Joshua Harris, if you look at his um, renunciation of the faith, he did an Instagram post some time ago when he walked away from the faith. It was fascinating to me that he used those same terms. You know, he used terms that are very Christian. He says, I'm freer than I've ever been. Mm. What, what's the definition of freedom? Because we know that he actually is enslaved. Mm-hmm. So why does that, what, what does he mean by freedom? Or <clears throat> the idea of, of people that have not been gracious, people that have not been charitable. Well, what's the definition of charity? That really stuck out to me because it scared me. I realized whatever definitions he's using, he even used language of deconstruction, which is related to this postmodern philosophy that's been, that's really all about uh, and, and by what standard. So at any rate, that's my first point to the phrase. Actually, look at these terms. Make sure you have biblical definitions for them and then assess what's going on. Um, 
And then the, the, the thing of people not wanting to listen, you know, I think that, I think that is there. I think it's a dimension of this whole deal. It's, I have found that be different with different people. So, so there are individuals that are willing to talk and hash these things out. Um, but I think there are people in leadership positions that have, have been there and maybe had a way of operating for a long time. And it's been a way where people don't want to actually engage in, in the conversation. They don't want to engage in, um, in addressing the issues that need to be addressed. So there are absolutely ways for, um, for leaders to paper over these problems. So I think there is a disconnect, um, there. We've had people that we've tried to reach out to that, um, that have not wanted to speak. And again, there have been some that we reached out to that absolutely did want to speak. Um, so I think that's a problem. And I think we just need to um, kind of patiently try to address it and be willing to sit down and hammer th- these things out. Jared, you have uh, started a new project, you being founders, uh, you and Tom. Tell us about that new project and uh the release date, anticipated release date, and uh, what it's going to be and how you hope it helps the church. The new project that you're talking about is called Wield the Sword. And it is, uh, we're calling it a docu-series. Now, in some strange reason, we are coming up with really fancy names for what we <laughs> do. So <clears throat> the, first, the first one, by what standard, was called a synodoc. Yeah, I'd never heard that before, before y'all. Yeah, so. Me neither, but somehow it caught on. <laughs> and um, and then this one is going to be called a docu series, which is I think the idea is it's a documentary that is episodic or that has a series feel to it. And we want to address a number of issues. <clears throat> the the idea behind it, you can find all of this at founders.org. If you go to founders.org, uh, you can track down wield the sword and introduction to it and kind of a layout of what we're going to do. This came about it, kind of in the wake of by what standard. We got done with by what standard. If you think of by what standard. The goal is um, very much kind of the sword. It was, it was, let's wake people up to this ideology that is out there that has infected um, um, people's thinking in the church in some ways, and let's try to identify it. And then as, as in the wake of that, we realized one of the major reasons that this has happened is because um, the church is trying to engage the culture. The church is trying to do evangelism. The church is trying to do apologetics. And it, uh, with this secular humanism out there, but rather than actually winning that battle, they're being infected with the secular humanism that they're trying to address. So um, there's kind of two routes you could go at that point. Um, I was kind of um, brought up in the um, young, restless, and reformed kind of thing, Acts 29 kind of thing, a lot of church planning, a lot of videos of a guy sitting downtown in some kind of city, right? And so he's going to talk about the city and transforming the city. And then we're going to play Chris Tomlin's song after it. You're the God of the city. You're the king of this people. And then we're going to say we should seek the welfare of the city. So a lot of that language, which I actually like, I like the Kuyperian um, spirit behind that. I, I, amen. Uh, Jesus looks over every square inch and he cries, mine. So what I think happened was that whole movement happened and men went out trying genuinely well-intentioned to go and to transform the city for Christ. And what happened is the city put them in their pocket. The city uh, taught them a lesson and they got this, this kind of worldly ideologies. They imbibed these worldly ideologies. So 
that, that again, we're trying to spell that out and by what standard. And then we realize, what do you do now? I think there's two options. One is you can kind of be a grumpy old pessimistic fella and say, well, you should have never been out there anyway, boy. Let mm-hmm. me tell you where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be right back here in this church and these four walls and got no business going out there. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you could do that kind of thing. We're just here to kind of, we're in the cave and we sneak out every now and then try to pick off a few people with our evangelism. We get back there in the cave. And that's not us. <clears throat> I, what I think is even a better way to solve this problem is to say, hey, let's talk about how you should have really been doing it. You want to, like, we're, we want to be the pastor in the public square. Let's do it in Pauline fashion. Let's do it um, the way that we see in the book of Acts, which was three yards in a cloud of dust. It was, you know, let's go to the next city and preach Christ. And a whole bunch of people hate you and yell at you. And some people are saved and the church is built up. And then you do it again, repeat, repeat. So wield the sword. The idea was, okay, conservative Christians, we talk a lot about the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, We even talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. but it's like the sword is up on the mantle. It's encased in glass. You know, it's well lit. There's the word. There's the sword of the spirit up there. And yeah, we believe it's inerrant. We believe it's sufficient. We believe it's authoritative. But it's like, is anybody actually going to take it down and use it? Mm-hmm. Is anybody going to wield it? Because when you wield it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. When you wield it, people start saying things about you. You have conflict with outsiders. You have conflict with people that are in the church, as as we have had. Um, But I I really believe that men have not been wielding that sword. Uh, So we've been reading the word, even preaching the word, but not necessarily applying the word to the issues of our times. So the sons of Issachar, they knew the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. And, and, and some of this is knowing what to do, knowing where to apply it. And then a lot of it is having the courage to apply it and say, yes, I'm not going to hedge on these texts uh, when they come up. I'm just going to read them and I'm going to actually exposit them. You know, I, I, so we're going to address issues of um, authority and responsibility. We're going to address issues of sexuality, of manhood, of womanhood. We're going to address issues like economics and vocation. We're going to address the issue of history. Um, So there's going to be a number of uh, topics that are addressed uh, from a biblical perspective. What is it going to look like to take the word of God and to actually put it to work, to apply it in these various spheres? So um, we are currently raising support for that work. We have a few of the first episodes uh, teed up and we're kind of in process. It's a long-term project. Okay. So we call it, you know, the, our, our um, podcast is called the sword and the trowel where by what standard was a lot of the sword. We're hoping this one is going to be a lot of trowel. Let's actually help people talk to them, train them and how they can actually um, build, how they can actually use the word of God in the world that God has made. That's great. That's so helpful. Uh, any, um, consideration for an episode on entertainment? Yeah, you know, we don't have um, we don't have a topic on entertainment specifically, but boy, how how we need to to do that. And I I think it might be able to be worked into like the one on culture. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a whole session on culture. Um, but yeah, you know, in one sense. <clears throat> In one sense, there's two things that need to happen with entertainment. The parents 
parents need to first wake up to what's happening, right? They need to understand that they're, they're telling stories and stories are powerful and um, stories shape the way you think. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've often, I've said to our people, you know, isn't it interesting that when you're watching, say, I don't know, Frozen, that Elsa doesn't just at some point in the, in the film, go into her prayer closet in her room, open the Bible and say, Oh, heavenly father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. whom you put forward on the cross as a propitiation for our sins and for the Holy spirit that you have given me new life and convict me by your word that I might follow and trust the Lord Jesus all my days. Amen. Right. And you know, they, everybody starts laughing. Well, why not? I mean, they, they, they could do that. Sure. The reason they didn't do that is because, this is our, our culture's not, um, you know, 100% Christian yet. And it's still full of secular humanism. So right, the right. other idea, so that's the first thing you need to be aware of what's happening that just, just that your children are being discipled, that you are being discipled, but what, where it would fit in even more to this is okay. So that's the defense. What about offense? Hmm. We should actually be the ones telling the stories. Um, which is really what we've done with by what standards, what we do with all of the articles and books that we publish. And I think Christians need to say, we're not only going to like guard against bad stories coming in or, you know, and, and there's also by all means we can enjoy movies and films and books. You just need to make sure you're doing it with your eyes wide open and training your children. Side note, I always tell everybody, you know, watch frozen all you want, but when Elsa's going over there, letting it go, letting it go saying no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I said, it's just, we just have a counseling session in my house. So we're going to pause that film <laughs> and all the kids, we're, we're going to be like, it's going to be like ACBC up in here. We're going to say, <laughs> where's the idol of the heart? And Elsa, let's address it. Now bring a promise of God to bear on that idol, tell her to believe. And she's obviously, so that's what we need, to, we need to be on the offense on, on many of these things. I think we really need to say, um, how can we build culture? Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Jared, I really appreciate all your help. Thank you so much, brother. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Well, again, I'd like to thank Jared Longshore for taking the time to come on Reclamation Worship. It's my hope that you benefited from our conversation on contending for the faith. If you would like to learn more, again, head on over to reclamationworship.com and check out the show notes for this episode. If you're not already, please go to iTunes and subscribe to Reclamation Worship. You can also leave a rating and a review. That really helps this podcast to grow. So please do that if you've not done so already. We are on Instagram at Reclamation Worship. We're on Facebook at Reclamation Worship and Twitter at Reclamation HQ. Until next time, solely Deo Gloria.